Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. If we feel that we can't touch a topic that is so essential to our nature as human beings, how can we possibly be truly intimate with ourselves and then each other? Because the fact is we can we can only meet each other to the extent that we can meet ourselves. So if we're running from this topic and we feel some degree of of like unresolved feelings then how do we have a healthy sex life engaging with a partner that was Zoe Kors on Psychologists Off the Clock We are three clinical psychologists here to bring you cutting-edge and science-based ideas from psychology to help you flourish in your relationships, work, and health. I'm Dr. Debbie Sorensen, practicing in Mile High, Denver, Colorado, and co-author of ACT Daily Journal. I'm Dr. Yael Schoenbrunn, a Boston-based clinical psychologist, assistant professor at Brown University, and author of the upcoming book, Work, Parent, Thrive. And from sunny San Diego, I'm Dr. Jill Stoddard, author of Be Mighty and the Big Book of ACT Metaphors. We hope you take what you learn here to build a rich and meaningful life. Thank you for listening to Psychologists Off the Clock. We all know there are trade-offs in life, like having to drive a little further to save on gas or groceries. But when it comes to your health, you shouldn't have to trade off. So don't go back to that one doctor who's always late and rushes through your appointment just because they're close by or they take your slightly sketchy insurance. Instead, check out ZocDoc, the place where you can find and book doctors who will make you feel comfortable, listen to you, and prioritize your health. You can search by location, availability, insurance, literally no trade-offs here because with ZocDoc, you've got more options than you know. ZocDoc is a free app and website where you can search and compare highly rated in-network doctors near you and instantly book appointments with them online. My kid's pediatrician is retiring this summer, so you can bet I will be using ZocDoc to find someone new who we all love and trust. So go to ZocDoc.com slash POTC and download the ZocDoc app for free. Then find and book a top-rated doctor today. That's Z-O-C-D-O-C dot com slash POTC. ZocDoc.com slash POTC. Our sponsor today is Uplift Desk, creators of office furniture designed to help you work better and live healthier. I love my Uplift standing desk. It's solid and sturdy and allows me to easily transition from sitting to standing while I work with just the push of a button. The ability to switch from sitting to standing throughout the day has been a complete game changer for me. I feel so much better than when I sit all day, and it helps me stay alert when I get tired. In addition to standing desks, Uplift offers ergonomic office seating, storage systems, even walking treadmills for your desk everything you need to up your office game. You can get free shipping with no hassles, free 30-day returns and return shipping, and a 15-year warranty. Remember, by supporting our sponsors, you are supporting the podcast. Visit upliftdesk.com slash POTC for 5% off your order. 
That's U-P-L-I-F-T desk.com slash P-O-T-C to get 5% off your entire order. Psychologist Off the Clock is proud to be partnered with Praxis Continuing Education. Praxis is the premier provider of evidence-based training for mental health professionals. And here at Psychologists Off the Clock, we are huge fans of Praxis. One of the things I love most about Praxis is they offer both live and on-demand courses. So if you're really looking for that live interaction with other people who are taking the course, you can get that. Or if you have a busy schedule and you need something that you can just kind of click onto whenever you have time, they offer that as well. And every course I have ever taken from Praxis has really been of such value to me. I get questions a lot from clinicians who are looking for ACT training or other types of trainings. And Praxis is my go-to place that I send people no matter what level they are because they have really good beginner trainings for people who have no experience. And they also have terrific advanced trainings on different topics and just people who want to keep building their skills. You can go to our website and get a coupon for the live trainings by going to our offers page at offtheclockpsych.com slash sponsors. And we'll hope to see you there. This is Yael. I'm here with Debbie to introduce a new episode. I got to interview a sex and intimacy coach by the name of Zoe Kors, who has a brand new book out called Radical Intimacy. I was really excited to dive into this topic because sex and intimacy are topics that I explore regularly in the couples therapy context, but we actually have had zero episodes thus far on this topic so far on the podcast. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of funny if you think about it, because one of the things you talk about in the episode is stigma and how it can be hard to talk about sex and intimacy. And we floated the idea of having an episode like this for years. You know, for me, I was like, it would be so good to have a conversation that's open about it. But then I got a little embarrassed. Like, I mean, my mom sometimes listens to the podcast. Hi, mom, by the way. (laughs) Um, If you're listening, maybe she won't to this topic. But, you know, it feels it's so interesting how it can feel uncomfortable. And in the meantime, I have two kids that I'm trying to teach about sex and puberty and all these things. And so it's like, on the one hand, you're trying to be open. And on the other hand, there is absolutely can be stigma attached to this topic. And so, you know, this is sort of a, a listener call, but but we do want to just let you know that there is some fairly frank conversation about sex and intimacy in this episode. So if you are around people who you'd prefer not to hear that, like Debbie's mom, then you can <laughs> save this episode for another time. But it was a really great conversation. And I even had a chance to have her walk me through a really cool exercise for building intimacy at the very end. So stay tuned all the way to the end for that awesome exercise. And I got a chance to ask the sex and intimacy expert all the kinds of questions that come up with my peers and many of the kinds of challenges that I see in the clinical room. And what's amazing is I I do think that, you know, because it's a topic that so few of us talk about, that so many people have so much shame around, and it's hard to talk about even with your partner, let alone with people outside of your intimate relationships, that many of the answers that Zoe gave about you know how to navigate some of these complexities in intimacy life are, are ones that can be helpful for a whole range of, of people. Like, so even if you think, oh, I don't have, you know, specific sexual problems, that you might learn a lot about opening up and really flourishing in your intimacy life. 
Yeah, I think it's interesting because on the one hand, there's no one size fits all model to any of this, right? Like we're all different when it comes to, you know, how we feel about sex and our values around sex and relationships and where it fits in. And I used to talk a lot about sex with some of my clients who had physical disabilities and chronic health conditions back when I worked in rehab psychology, because often people, you know, experienced a a change in that area. And they were trying to navigate things and they had to sometimes be creative and things were really different than they were before. And you realize that there, there truly is so much diversity, but there also is such a common humanity element to it that so many of us, you know, might feel self-critical or we might struggle with some of the same things. You know, Yael, you talked about your couple's work and how you'll hear these themes and couples or individuals within a partnership might feel like they're alone with it, but there is such common humanity to it that that you see often themes emerge over time with your practice. And I went to a conference one time for mental health professionals and there was a sex therapist who gave a workshop and she had us all take a note card and write down something we feel shame about related to sex. And it was anonymous. No one put their name on it. And she mixed them all up so nobody could tell whose was whose and and laid them out. And then we walked around and like looked at them. It was so powerful. I'll never forget that exercise because I think what really struck me is that you know, no one's alone in feeling shame and in some of the the situations that have been people have been through that they might keep to themselves and and not want to talk about. But actually, it's through opening it, it up to it that people can start to have a conversation and can start to, you know, heal or to move forward in their lives. Yeah. So let's talk more about sex on this podcast with our partners, with our therapists. I mean, that that is really one of the take-home messages that Zoe left me with is to bring it out into the open. So take advantage of the opportunity to listen to Zoe, to get more comfortable with conversations around sex and intimacy, and then bring it home to your partner or to whoever you think could benefit from it, because this is something that we need to have less shame around so that we can grow and flourish more in our relationships. I'm here with Zoe Kors, who's a sex and intimacy coach, contributor to the sexual wellness app Coral, host of the Radical Intimacy podcast, and the author of the recently released book, Radical Intimacy, Cultivate the Deeply Connected Relationships You Desire and Deserve. Welcome, Zoe. Hi, Elle. How are you? I'm good. I'm so excited to talk about sex and intimacy. I had mentioned this to you before, but I specialize in couples therapy. And so in my therapy work, I talk a lot about sex, but we rarely talk about it on the podcast. So I'm really excited to dig in with you today. I'm so happy to be here. So first of all, how did you take the journey to becoming a sex and intimacy coach. I will say growing up, I always, you know, Dr. Ruth was sort of like the the sex coach, the sex therapist that everybody talked about. And I always thought how cool it would be to be in her line of work. How interesting. Right. But, but how did you travel down that road and land in this in this professional line of work? Yeah, it's really interesting. And I think it's a combination of um my own path, my own experiences in my relationships. And in the book, I talk about uh, my 10-year sexless marriage when I was in my 20s. And and then, you know, having that inspire uh, just a personal inquiry into sexuality, the nature of sexuality, how we relate to each other, what things affect 
libido and sex drive and, and sort of finding a doorway into that through yoga and meditation and and sort of a deep dive into the practice of tantra which is sort of an an eastern and indian specifically sort of philosophy of you know human experience and so that informed my sort of perspective on sexuality yeah well and your focus is so important many people are dissatisfied with their sex lives and I think what's so cool about the way that you approach it is it's so open and accessible. But for most people, it's really hard to talk about sex, at least in ways that feel helpful, right? We can sort of do it in these pejorative ways or joking ways, but it's hard to talk about it in a more vulnerable way. So whether it's initiating a conversation with our partner, with our friends, or even with our therapist, it's so anxiety provoking that many people just avoid even raising the topic. So I'm curious what your advice is to encourage people to start the conversation with a partner or even to ask help from a therapist or a sex and intimacy coach? Yeah. You know, I'm asked this question not infrequently, and there are two things. First is just sort of recognizing that we are products of cultural conditioning. For anyone who's struggling with talking about sex or thinking about sex or their relationship with their own body or the energy that we run or any facet of sexuality, just knowing that you are not alone. This is not your fault. Your awkwardness, your your discomfort, that is all because we are put in this context where there's a lot of shame. There's a lot of, we don't talk about that. And there's a lot of hypersexualization. So we are, we, what ends up happening is like, especially with women, but men have their own set of conditioning and, and issues around this as well. Nobody really escapes it, but we, we end up feeling as though we have no context, no acceptable, healthy context for the things that we're feeling either physically or emotionally about sex. So, so just recognizing that before you sort of broach the topic with your partner or a therapist or a friend even, and, and knowing that everybody feels the same way. Everyone in this culture feels some degree of anxiety around the topic. So just, you know, saying, I want to be more comfortable. Start the conversation with just saying like, I feel awkward. I don't know how to talk about this, but I want to talk about it and feel more comfortable exploring it. I love that language because it's kind of like naming it to tame it. And and guess what? Probably whoever you're raising it with will say, me too. I feel awkward too. Yes. I'm so glad you brought it up. <laughs> yes, exactly. That's often the way that I bring it up in couples therapy. I try to normalize it when I ask. I say, many couples come in and they don't mention sex is an issue but it's commonly an issue, right? So, and and it, it often gets sort of a, a double-sided response, which is, you know, many people are kind of like, I don't want to talk about that. It's so uncomfortable, but also, yeah, it's an issue. I'm, I'm glad and relieved that you raised it because I didn't want to. Yeah, yeah. Um, I love that you bring it up and so many therapists don't and don't, don't feel qualified to and don't even want to recognize it. I mean, I think that therapists might 
benefit from a little bit more training. Um, I think everybody would benefit from a little <laughs> more exposure to this conversation, you know? So, I mean, I think that that's part of, hey, you know, how to saddle this horse. The, I think that that's part and parcel of this idea of radical intimacy is like the idea that we, you know, if we are resisting something, if we feel that we can't touch a topic that is so essential to our nature as human beings, how can we possibly uh, be truly intimate with ourselves and then each other? Because the fact is we can, we can only meet each other to the extent that we can meet ourselves. So if we're running from this topic and we feel some degree of, of like unresolved feelings, then how do we have a healthy sex life engaging with a partner? Yeah. So let's back up a little bit and, and actually, if you would define what is radical intimacy and, and why should intimacy be radical? Yeah. So radical intimacy essentially is my model of intimacy that I've developed organically over the years. Um, and piece of it, pieces of it kind of came together in, in various situations, you know, exploring in my own relationships and with the relationships of my clients. And so I define three kinds of intimacy, emotional, physical, and what I call energetic. And we can talk a little more about that. Those are the three kinds of intimacy. And then there are three levels of intimacy, self, other, and world. And so when you grid these out, almost like a bingo card, and I, I draw that in the book, I have a, what I call the radical intimacy matrix with the three kinds across the top and the three levels up the left side and grid it out, you end up with nine areas of opportunity to cultivate deep connection and intimacy. And so that looks something like physical intimacy with self, physical intimacy with other, physical intimacy with world, and then the same for the other two kinds of intimacy. And so, you know, these areas, some of them are sort of, you know, for each of us, some of us have areas where we are more comfortable. It's just sort of, you know, it feels native to us, you know, physical intimacy with another might be an area that you're very comfortable with. You're a touchy feely person. You're comfortable with sex. You're, you know, to some extent, um, but maybe emotionally emotional intimacy with yourself or with someone else, maybe that's a little bit uncomfortable for you, right? So the the idea is, is that we as individuals have much more fulfilling lives, balanced lives, connected lives, if we intentionally nurture all nine areas of intimacy. So Throughout the book, I talk about like the nuances of all these different levels and kinds and then provide exercises, which will sort of nourish those areas. Yeah. And the exercises are so great. And what I'll say is, you know, we had a conversation um, a couple of weeks ago where I said, you know, I tend to be very science backed and a lot of your exercises and your approach is more organically formed through your own experience, but it really maps on to what the science says. So it's, it's really nice because 
one of the really common science, uh, scientifically backed treatments for sexual problems is something called sensate focused therapy. And a lot of your exercises are really aligned with that and have to do with really connecting with yourself physically and emotionally, connecting with your partner physically and emotionally. And we'll talk, uh, I hope, a bit about some of those exercises that people can actually try out to build more of those kinds of connection. One thing that uh, came to my mind as you were talking about this matrix is the idea that you know many people are more comfortable in one area. So for example, one partner might be more comfortable with physical sexual intimacy while another is really more comfortable with the emotional intimacy. And that I think it can line up to differences in sexual desire or, or drives. And, and so I'm curious how you advise couples with mismatched sex drives and or mismatched um, areas of comfort to negotiate their needs? That's a big question, I realize. Yeah. It, well, it's a great question, and it's really at the crux of so much of my couple's work. So I, um, I work with couples to really identify their individual strengths, right, in, in this area, their sort of intimacy strengths. And, and what, I, what I like to do, I'm, I'm hesitant to do to define, to too strongly define intimacy types. But I'm, I'm, I'm sort of playing around with, with really fleshing that out a little more. For now, in a, in a looser way, I help couples, help individuals, the two partners, identify where they are comfortable, right? So like for someone who is really in touch with their emotions and they're really emotionally driven, they're an emotional intimacy type. That's how they feel connected. And really often, you know, I'll ask couples, you know, when do you feel most connected? What makes you feel connected to your partner? Sometimes that's a deep soul dive conversation about, you know, a topic that has come up in, you know, in their lives or, you know, relationships with family, but they feel connected when they can actually voice their emotions and feel seen and received um, and supported. And that happens a lot when I see couples who will say, like, I I don't have a sex drive. I don't have desire for you to have sex unless I feel emotionally connected. And the other one will often say, I need to have sex in order to feel safe enough to be vulnerable and, and show you my emotions and, and connect that way. Recognizing and naming our different styles and what we need allows a couple to be able to consciously fill each other up, you know, and it may be a practice of, you know, for a physical intimacy type, it doesn't necessarily need to be sex, but they need to feel that physical affection. They need to feel physically held. So a hugging practice, you know, holding hands, having a, a, a time where they know that they will connect in a way that the emotional intimacy type feels like they're not being pushed beyond their limits right? They meet each other halfway. And then they also schedule in a time where they are connecting emotionally. How was your day? How are you feeling? You know? And if for the person who is more of a physical type and less in, in tune, less emotionally driven, often they don't know how they feel. 
good or not good. <laughs> but I give tools in the book as well, the the wheel of emotions and and so that you can kind of look at the nuances of, you know, I'm angry because I feel abandoned or I'm angry because I feel rejected or I'm angry because I feel like my values are being pushed on, you know. So, yeah. I love what you're saying, and it, it really fits in with Gary Chapman's five love languages. And that's sometimes how I talk about it, that some people feel the love through the you know verbal affirmation, and then others feel more uh, the receipt or the giving of love through physical connection, whether that's sexual intimacy or, as you're saying, another kind of physical contact. And if there's a mismatch there, it can really be frustrating for both people because you want to give love and receive love and yet you're on, you're speaking different languages. And so exactly as you're saying, if you can sort of figure out how to communicate in the other person's language, even if it's not your primary languages and you'll have a, you know, your grammar will be off and you'll have a heavy accent, but hopefully your partner can appreciate the effort and vice versa and meet each other part way. The other thing that comes up as you're saying that is the difference between desire and arousal that I think is common. And this is a little bit stereotyped, but there's often a gender difference there. So I wonder if you can speak to the difference between desire and arousal and again, how how people can meet each other in the middle there. Yeah, um, it's a great question, and um, and I do want to normalize there. You know, there are sort of, I mean, gender stereotypes exist for a reason. Um, you know, whether it's nature or nurture, or you know, or, or organic or conditioned into us. I, I do want to normalize men who are really emotional and really crave. I'm married to one of them. You know, mm-hmm. I I'm. Uh, you know, he wants deep, deep connection, and that's what really turns him on. And I, I just sort of want him to smack my ass, you know. <laughs> uh, and we'll talk later. Um, so there are, I mean, there are, and and many of my clients, um, the the men are are really deeply emotional and craving that kind of a connection. Um, so it goes both ways. Um, and you know, I think that. You know, so desire and arousal, many people don't even, haven't really drawn the distinction for themselves. Desire is the, the, the drive to have sex. Like the, it, it's sort of, um, I mean, you, you might have more science behind this, but it's the, it's the wanting to have sex. Right. It's more the cognitive piece. Yes. And the arousal is more the somatic piece. Like it's actually, there are four stages of arousal and you are aroused when your genitals are engorged with blood and your, you know, all the things, your heart, you know, rate increases and rate of respiration increases. And, you know, eventually if you have a penis, you have an erection. And if you have a, a vagina you're lubricating and like those are the that's arousal the physical component um you know the way i look at desire and arousal it is so much more complex than than just whether or not you're physical or emotional there's also this energetic piece that I've defined that sort of gets in the mix here. But the way I look at it is that there's a mind-body connection. And in sexuality, I sort of call it the the mind-body double helix. And if you imagine, you know, a strand of DNA is the sort of famous, you know, example of that structure of a double helix. Those two pieces are so entwined that 
that beyond, you know, sort of intimacy types and all of that, I, I think that it's most helpful to think of what's two things, the way I think about sex and the way I feel when I'm having sex. And to start to pull those strands separately. And I will often have, particularly with people who have experienced trauma and are healing from trauma and have, you know, a trauma response or intrusive thoughts. And they're really trying to sort out what's happening in their mind and in their body and how those sort of communication channels between those two parts of ourselves get chaotic. And so that's a lot of like really knowing yourself, you know, what turns me on, giving permission for a sort of erotic world and, and then noticing how your thoughts affect what you're feeling back and forth. And then when you add a partner to that, right, then there's a sort of a sharing, you know, if you bring curiosity to it, and you consider this an intimacy lab, then there's no battle. It's not a zero sum game here. We're just experimenting together with what, you know, what context we want to set for our sex and, and what activities will, you know, keep us connected and, and get our bodies and minds all on board together. I love the idea of establishing sort of an intimacy lab and bringing curiosity because it doesn't require any given outcome. It's just a process that you're engaging in together with your partner. And the other part that I I just want to sort of emphasize, because I think it's so important, is that there is a mind piece and a body piece. So the desire piece and the arousal piece, and either one can impact the other. So you can mentally kind of get in the mood and have a fantasy and sort of uh, allow that to pave the way to arousal. Or being aroused by your partner, being massaged by them can get your mind in a place of being open to to engaging in intimacy. It can happen either way. And I think sometimes we kind of put ourselves in a box and say, well, I've got to be in the mood or my body has to feel a particular way. But as you're saying, if you kind of have more openness and allow your mind to impact your body, your body to impact your mind, and just to sort of come to the intimacy lab with open curiosity there are a lot more opportunities than you might initially expect. Well, and what you're speaking to are desire types, responsive desire and spontaneous desire. And so some people feel a spontaneous desire. They see somebody who they find is attractive walk in the room, or they have a thought or a memory or something triggers the desire for sex. And for some people, they really have to be involved in some level of activity for them to feel the physical response. So, and both are normal. And, and you'll often see a couple with different desire types where the spontaneous desire person is always initiating and wondering why their responsive desire type partner isn't initiating and that they must not feel the same way. And, that's often a, a real point of contention and and hurt feelings in uh, a couple with mismatched desire types, which is, you know, like, I just also want to say that the vast majority of couples experience some degree of desire discrepancy. It just is like the, the that, that a couple will 
always want the very same amount of sex all the time for their entire long-term monogamous relationship is completely unrealistic. So, you know, every one of us, there's no shame behind it. Every one of us has to have that conversation with our partner, you know? Yeah. I think it's so important to bust that myth that we are supposed to have the same desire type or even that there's such a thing as sexual compatibility or sexual incompatibility. These are things, it's sort of like moving from a fixed mindset to growth mindset. Those are skills that you can build together with your partner if it's of interest to do that. And so I think, you know, we have a lot of myths and and I want to talk a little bit about that. I'm going to Pause, put a pin in that for a moment. But I think that there are a lot of myths that we've just absorbed in our culture that make it that much harder to think that there are there's potential in our sex life with our partner. One thing, one other important myth that I think is is something that is really so much woven into the fabric of how we think about sex is that the goal of sex should be to have orgasm. And, you know, because I do couples therapy, this is something that I talk about a lot with couples because it's something that puts so much pressure on intimate encounters. And you talk a lot about it in your book. So talk to me about why it's a problem to be so focused on orgasm. Yeah, well, because if we make orgasm the goal of sex, we miss all kinds of opportunity along the way to for for pleasure, for different kinds of pleasure and for different experiences and sensations. There is great, great value and I believe healing properties in the extended state of arousal, right? So, so as we, as we enter into a state of arousal, right? We are, it's almost like a form of meditation. Some people will say it's like a form of prayer. We are connecting with something outside of ourselves. It's an altered state of consciousness. And so that has, you know, neurological benefits. There are all kinds of hormones being, you know, and neurotransmitters being released in the brain during that period. And what i mean there are two things you know the 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 physical experience of sex and sexual activity and sexual arousal when you are not figuring out how to get from point a to point b in and of itself makes the 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 experience of sex so much richer so much more pleasurable but then the other piece of it is that the more you focus on orgasm, the less likely it is to happen. It's just one of those things that you can't, you can't chase it or it, or it goes away. Right. So for people who are, and, and listen, orgasm is great. I mean, orgasm, I'm not, you know, there's a lot of, there's, you know, there's a whole conversation about the orgasm gap and, you know, how, how women aren't, we, we aren't taking care of women in a way sexually in, in which orgasm is important. And the, there's a whole conversation there and I'm I'm definitely an advocate of orgasm, but but there's so much more, you know? There's so much more in the intimacy lab to experience than an orgasm. Yeah, so it's it's sort of like the the double whammy. I mean, one is you miss out on the process if you're too focused on the outcome and this is something we talk a lot about in the kind of therapy that I and my co-host practice, which is acceptance and commitment therapy that um, we want to focus on the journey and hold the outcome lightly 
because life is a journey, right? And, and we want to be present for life. If we're only focused on where we're going to, we're going to miss out on the vast majority of life. And not only that, but it makes it much harder to get to whatever outcome you desire if you're holding on too tightly. It's, it's paradoxical, but the harder we try to get to some outcome, at least from a psychological point of view, and this is true with all sorts of psychological phenomenon, whether it's happiness or really good performance, and certainly that's true for orgasms as well. And so I think that is a, a critically important myth to bust that, you know, if we just try hard enough that we can get to orgasm. Right. Or that even that we should. Well, yes. And and I think that it's like, I try to get my clients away from referring to orgasm as finishing, right? Because there's a sort of, there's a judgment involved in that. And if I didn't have an orgasm, then I failed, or it wasn't good sex, or it, or I didn't finish, I was left hanging. Well, there are plenty of ways to have a really incredible sexual experience without, and most women know this, because women often will not have an orgasm when their partner does and still have a really enjoyable experience. So it's like um, to, to sort of make orgasm the goal also means that it's the measure of success of any sexual encounter. And that's just really unfortunate. It's so unfortunate. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the must not take yourself too seriously and 6-1 since that matters. And what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. So that brings me to my next question, which is, you know, how important is sex to a relationship? Okay, this is a big question, and I kind of want to break it down to a very specific example that comes up a lot in the therapy room and also among my middle-aged peer group. So what do you do when there's zero sexual interest in your partner, but you otherwise have a happy life together? Do you leave your partner or do you stay? Because, you know, sex is one part of a relationship, but it's certainly not all of it. And for example, you know, if you have a happy home life, how much does it matter if you're just not interested in your partner sexually? What, what are your thoughts on that? I think that there are couples who are sort of mutually not that interested in sex, that, that it, you know, they have what would uh, normally be categorized as a, a sexless marriage, which is essentially you have sex, you know, once a month or less. Um, and, I think that's fine. If that is, if both partners in the, in the couple are legitimately okay with that, then that's absolutely fine. I, if one partner is wanting sex and the other is not, I don't think that's fine. I think that it's not, I mean, and you can, whether you should leave or not, not for me to say, you know, you work that out with your therapist, but I do believe strongly that, um, that it needs to be looked at and there needs to be a, a conversation about whether or not, first of all, there are many, many reasons why one partner may not want sex. There are physiological reasons. There are psychological reasons. There's all kinds of stuff. There could be relational reasons. And I think that all of that needs to be articulated and, you know, like explored and discovered and articulated and understood between the partners. Because it may be that 
you know, when everything else is there, the love and the respect and the, 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 you know, intimacy in other areas, um, there are ways to channel that into a physical connection that works for both people. And that might be a compromise, you know, um, I've also had clients who agree to open up the marriage and that's fine too, with a lot of, of sort of communication and a lot of sort of relational skill behind that. It's a, it's a totally legitimate possibility. It takes a lot of work though. I don't want to, I mean, that's not something that you can do casually, you know? I see a lot of couples who've opened up their marriage and it just seems like they they're sort of on the hook for a lot of communication and sort of, you know, really deepening their understanding. And I think that that works for some people, but I think you're right that it is absolutely a viable option, but it's not kind of for free. You, you, there, it takes some effort. So much more effort in some ways than a monogamous relationship. I, I don't have that in me. I, I, <laughs> I just, it's too, I don't want to talk about everybody's feelings that much. Um, but what, and I, I run into this all the time with one partner, the sort of low desire partner who, who just doesn't want to have sex and feels like they don't, they shouldn't have to have sex. And then, so my question for them is always, what is your vision for your partner? Is it that you don't want to have sex? So now you have decided that your partner doesn't get to express themselves sexually for the rest of their lives? Like, how does that work? And what do you think their experience of that is? And it's, you know, it's unanswerable. It's sort of once you start to, to, to ask the questions and probe a little bit, it becomes really clear that, that something needs to give in that situation. And another common manifestation of that or another common situation that I see clinically and again with my peer group is that, you know, one partner is interested sexually in the other and then the second partner has sexual desire just not for their their marital partner. And so it, it is a complicated situation because one partner is really committed and wants to explore that side of their relationship and the other is just really disinterested. Yeah. And, and, you know, <laughs> I, I also think that there's maybe beyond the, the sort of parameters of this particular episode of your show, but I, I do think that it's acceptable to talk about dissolving the partnership in that way or, or making, you know, transmuting this, the, the partnership to a different kind of partnership. I just, you know, look, for me, it's really important sexual expression and sexual exploration is extremely important to me. If it it's part of my personal values, it's part of who I am. And if I can't have that for whatever reason with a partner, then we're going to talk about being friends or we're going to talk about being co-parents or we're going to talk about, you know, maybe like, thank you so much for this time together. And I've learned a lot and it's time to move on. I, you know, we hang on to these relationships and situations and, you know, when kids are involved, it gets complicated and there are a lot of, you know, that's really the priority. I also don't believe that you that that the the default or the only way is to stay together for the kids. There, that's a whole um, 
it's much more complex than that also. But I just want to sort of nod to the fact that parenthood is an, is an extra dynamic that is, you know, the priority. But I, I do feel like there are so many ways to be in partnership with people that yeah. it doesn't necessarily you know, need to be like, I'm going to, I'm going to hang on to this until there's claw marks in it and make it work because, you know, three out of four areas of this partnership work, but that one area, you know, I don't want to live without anymore. Yeah. Yeah. It's a question of values, but related to that. And I think this is like a broader um, experience for a lot of couples who are in long-term committed marriages is that you may have some initial attraction and want to nurture that part of your relationship, but but over time, there's lack of mystery, you're too busy, tired, stressed, we grow bored. And so what's your recommendation for if you do want to work on that part of your marriage, but you've been together so long and, and your parents and you work and yeah. you now go to the bathroom with the door open. <laughs> so how do you bring some spark back in? Yeah, close the bathroom door. That's what <laughs> I think that um, I think that with uh, you know with some intention and practice and focus, it, there you can have an incredible sexual renaissance in a in a long term partnership after a long dry spell. I think that there it can be fun. I mean, it can be really fun to kind of like make that your project and. You know, there there are too many dynamics to really sum up. Esther Perel is awesome at you know, yeah, meeting in yeah. captivity is a great a great read if you're in the situation that I just described. Yeah, for sure. Um, and she really has her sort of handle on on the nature of desire in a committed long term uh, relationship. Um, but I, you know, I I will say, and this is going to be good news for some people that are listening and not as good news for some people who are listening. But when a couple comes in and they, and they have sort of uh, hit a really long dry spell and they really want to get the spark back, I will always ask them, how was it at the beginning? Because for a couple who had that kind of connection and chemistry, it's much easier to get it back. There's something to refer back to. There was an initial um, attraction there and, you know, what people call chemistry. And so it's much easier to sort of like spark that and fan those flames and, and reconnect and play. For a couple, I, I have a lot of, for whatever reason, I have a preponderance of heterosexual couples where the woman will come to me individually and say, I love my husband. I, I, he's the greatest guy. He's the greatest dad. And I've never particularly been attracted to him. I married the nice guy. I married the safe guy after I dated a lot of super hot assholes. And I thought I was doing the right thing, but I just, I'm not attracted. That's a hard situation. That's a really, that's a tough and and it takes a lot more soul searching and work to change the way you're thinking and therefore the way you're feeling in the relationship and and it's it's often not successful yeah 
I, I think that is kind of the situation that I was referring to. And I guess, you know, I think it, it may not always be successful, but the optimist in me wants to believe that there are ways to build that, even if you haven't had it in the past, but it is, it is work. Um, and it requires some creativity and a lot of resources directed to, to really cultivate that, but it can feel like an uphill battle. Yeah. And I think that, you know, I think that both partners have to be willing to show up differently in the dynamic, you know, and that's the thing is like, if you start from the place of like, I, you need to accept me the way I am. Um, and there's, and I'm not really willing to do anything differently it's not going to go anywhere. Like you really need two partners who can see this as, you know, again, climb into a laboratory and start to really co-create something different. And, you know, we are just not given skills or, or context or instruction to be able to do that. I will often tell people, listen, you know, that it takes in in very many areas of your life, you need to work on something, you need to build something, you need to create something, you need to enlist the support of professionals like financial fitness, building a house or buying a house and maintaining a house. I mean, there are all of these areas of our lives where we put in the work and reap the rewards. And sex and intimacy is just exactly the same. Yeah. And I love the idea of approaching it as a shared project, right? If it's not going as you'd like or, or or as one of you would like, why not take it on as a shared project and and really see where you can take it? And you have this quote in your book that I love, which is, quote, we can hardly demand that our partner want to have sex with us, but we can intentionally create the conditions in which their natural desire can flourish. And if you do that together it can be really enjoyable work. Yeah, that's right. Hey, Psychologist Off the Clock listeners. I'm going to guess that if you are listening to this episode that you love to geek out about books in psychology. So if you are a fellow book nerd like Yale and I, and all of the people around you are tired of you talking about books, then you can join us once a month to really take a deep dive into the the books that we're going to be reading together. And even though books themselves are not therapy, many books offer huge therapeutic value. So join Katie and I with our background in acceptance and commitment therapy and other evidence-based psychotherapies to explore together how we can apply some of these ideas from great books in psychology to our everyday lives. Bring your questions, bring your insights, and join us for deep conversations once a month starting May 5th at 12 p.m. Eastern Standard Time in the U.S. And if you're interested in joining us, and we hope you are, just send us an email at offtheclockpsych at gmail.com and we'll send you the Zoom link. You do provide a nice segue into talking about sort of the way that our culture sets us up to not have these tools. And even more than not have these tools, we have these really unrealistic ideals of what it's supposed to be like. So there's like erotic imagery and ideals everywhere. I'm not even thinking about the pornography industry exclusively, but like Bridgerton, right? Which 
actually had intimacy coordinators on set <laughs> to try to craft these seamless intimate encounters, which are just not the reality for most of us. I mean, these ideals are really unrealistic. Um, but so many of us have the assumption that that's how it's supposed to be, that all other people are having better sex than we are more often than we are. So I guess my question to you is, how do you help people get out of their self-critical minds when it comes to sex and just enjoy what is without getting too hooked on what they feel it should be? Yeah. Um, so one of the things, it's not the sexiest work of all of this, but one of the things that I that I do at the beginning of a journey of, of awakening and discovery is to really understand our influences. So um, I define seven areas of major areas of influence. And I think that we are not accustomed to really sort of understanding all the things that lead us to think about sex the way we think about it. You know, I, I can point myself one of the, one of the most defining, I mean, this is going to sound sad, um, but it's the truth. Um, and I'm okay with it now because I name it and recognize it. And I've metabolized what the, what effect this had on me. What I'm, what I'm speaking to is the, uh, sports illustrated swimsuit edition. That started to be on newsstands. And actually, when it first came out, it was in every, I don't think they do this anymore, but it was in every supermarket newsstand, the magazines at the checkout. And, and that started happening right around my adolescence. I was, I think, a teenager when I, when that first hit. And I can remember thinking to myself, wow. This is like, I will never look like that. You know, I, I mean, it doesn't matter how thin I am or how, you know, I'm five foot two. I am busty. I'm never going to look like these women. And that's the pinnacle. And for a sports magazine that focuses on athletes, these women are much more celebrated than the women athletes. Right. So there's so much in that. So I, I can sort of deconstruct that and understand that that caused a, and some people will call this like a trauma, a form of trauma. It caused a separation between, um, between how I am organically and how I thought I should be or what, how people were going to see me, receive me, you know, and, and deem me undesirable. So, yeah. So I think that looking back at all these things and, and look, so family, your family culture, how was nudity treated? How was affection treated? How, I mean, there are sort of explicit and implicit messages. And sometimes the the total lack of acknowledgement of any kind of sexuality at all is the loudest message, you know? So family culture, the culture in which you were raised, were you raised in like a religious household? Were you in a community of people who were religious and, and you know, had a particular viewpoint of sex one way or the other, whatever that was, you know, did you grow up in Minnesota? Did you grow up in, Alabama? Did you grow up in, you know, Italy or 
wherever, Abu Dhabi, you know, like it's all that cultural context affects the way we see gender, sexuality, masturbation, bodies, all of it. So, so really when you're at the beginning of this journey of, of self exploration and your relationship with yourself and sex, you know, you can, you, it really is essential to understand whose messages you have internalized as truths and what the possibilities are for you to hold it all differently. Yes. Not sexy work, but, <laughs> but important work. And, you know, so if for listeners who are wanting to do that work, one of the beginning stages of that, which is sort of easy to do, is I have my clients write down everything, everything that they can point to that has influenced their relationship with sex or their bodies and, um, and write it all down. You can write it on different pieces of paper. You can write it on one big piece of paper. You know, the, the, I can tell you, you know, the way what boyfriends said about my body, good or bad. I can tell you, you know, about the, the, the magazine cover. I can tell you about trying on a, a bikini when I was 16 and never putting a bikini back on my body. I can tell you, you know, all the different things. I mean, there are a million different ways. It can be, it can be something that happened on a playground where, you know, you had a, 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 a moment of recognition of like how boys play and how girls play and how they interact. It can be anything, but there's a good, like spend a week of, of inquiry into things that affected you and could be connected in some way to the way you feel about sex right now and put it all down by a really buy or create or find a special box and put it all in that box and put that box on a high shelf in the back of the closet out of the way. You can return to that box later to take an inventory. I often have people take down that box and sort through it and like keep the things that are still unresolved or, you know, bury or burn the things that have gotten resolved through their work with themselves. But, but just taking all of that stuff and symbolically locking it away, putting it out of sight clears almost a space of possibility. I love that. I mean, that that's sort of a really nice practice of recognizing what the thoughts are and unhooking from them. And there's this whole body of research. The lead researcher is James Pennybaker, who talks about writing things down as a as a way to process, you know, internal content that's that's in your mind and and get it out and and really how helpful that is in so many different ways. And I love the idea of like putting all those thoughts related to sex and body image and gender identity down and, and locking them away and then deciding what you want to sort of continue to hold close and what you might want to edit or, or just let go of. Related to that, in many of the uh, media portrayals and the way that we've come to integrate ideas of sex into our life, we often think about sex as an avenue to power and often in like pretty pernicious ways that sex can be used to demean women, you know, like in the Me Too movement, this has really become forefront. 
But at the same time, intimacy really requires a letting go and a willingness not to be in control. And you sort of talked about how in your own sex life, you know, being over, not overpowered, but but sort of like having your husband engage with you in a way that can be a little bit assertive, for lack of a better word, can be really gratifying. So the role of power in sex is clearly very complicated. And so I'm curious, you know, how do you see the role of power in intimacy and what happens and how do you counsel couples where one person really doesn't want to let go of control and is sort of um, feeling too vulnerable, but, and that's interfering with the intimacy. Yeah, it's a complex question. My, my first reaction to to what you're saying is that power happens outside the bedroom that it's actually not a sexual issue for for people who are you know the me too movement or or women i know plenty of women who use their sexuality powerfully to sort of gain what they want in a in a particular relationship or a circumstance and and none of that actually has to do with sex it has to do with sort of systems and 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 di- relational dynamics and particularly like in the workplace i think the power in the bedroom you know <laughs> the answer to everything is transparency consent and a- acknowledgement you know um the entire kink world bdsm world runs on power play you know and and there's consent to that so when when you're talking about like f- power in the bedroom in that way it's it's consensual it's hmm i i think that you're you're spot on and i'm glad that you're saying that you know it's not exactly power when you're talking about consent it's it's really sort of a, a mutual decision to engage in intimacy in a particular way there are common examples that i see clinically where you know and and i know that you work with compulsive sexual behaviors and you know sometimes those kinds of behaviors can really cause hurt and make the other partner feel very vulnerable and so m- maybe taking the word of power out and just thinking about the vulnerability. Like if you have a partner who's been hurt by somebody, you know, whether the partner had an affair or engaged in inappropriate sexual behavior or, or even, you know, did something hurtful that had nothing to do with sex, but because sex can be such a vulnerable place to be, how do you help that vulnerable partner lean into intimacy and how do you help the partner who transgressed to support their more vulnerable partner in feeling safer? Yeah, I, I think that this is this is exactly the crux of it, is that there is no if there is a power differential and someone is wielding power in the bedroom in sex, it's not okay. Right? You always want to have and and safety is of the utmost um trust and safety are two essential ingredients to a healthy sexual experience and, and connection and in, interaction. So when I do work with um, with people who are dealing with compulsive sexual behaviors and their partners who are dealing with 
betrayal trauma. When it comes time, and my my sort of role on on those teams is to to help couples then reintroduce sex, healthy sex, and there has often never really been a healthy dynamic there. So, yeah, I mean, it's so interesting because the the trust and safety, I often say this to my couples, is that the safety is established and trust is restored outside the bedroom. There's there like that isn't something that happens during sex. You actually have to do all of that. And and they, the, these couples come to me after they, they have really restored that trust. Like they're not ready for me until they are, you know, firmly rooted in sobriety and they, you know, and they're like, they're, they're not in crisis. There's no triage happening anymore. And then it's just a matter of getting, like we said at, at the beginning, getting the, the mind and the body on board and being able to have the usually incredibly remorseful transgressing partner you know the the partner who's acted out equipping them with the bandwidth to be able to hold their partner's discomfort and trauma response and dysregulation right and not get triggered into a shame spiral and not feel totally guilty and not get defensive because of that guilt and shame. And, you know, so it's, it's, there's a sort of like, there's, there are these steps that I lead partners through who, you know, they, they basically are just present and learn to talk, like use their words to describe what's happening and to get curious and to, you know, help co-regulate basically. Um, but that's something, you know, that kind of safety is is established, you know, in every minute of every day. Does that answer the question? That's such a good answer. I love it. I love I love the clarity that that trust and safety is built outside of the bedroom that we can't really expect to have safe vulnerable sex with somebody with whom we don't feel safe. <laughs> and, right. and that safety can't be built through sex. It needs to be built through our day-to-day relationship. That's right. I wanted to take the chance to ask you, so, you know, I think it is clear what emotional intimacy looks like and what sexual intimacy looks like, but what is this third realm of energetic intimacy? Can you explain what that is and why it's so important? Yeah. Um, Yes, because, um, and this is where we get a little bit uh, metaphysical, right? There are certain things, I mean, we can kind of, and I do a little bit of this in the book where I sort of, you know, um, point to various people like Albert Einstein, who got very metaphysical towards the end of his life. There are certain things that, that we can, uh, <laughs> yes, right? there are certain things, there are certain things that we can point to neurologically that's happening in our nervous system and, and in our sort of state of consciousness. And, uh, but, you know, ultimately, and th- this is where, you know, the sort of yoga practitioner and meditator comes in. There are just things about energetic intimacy that sort of defy definition, really. 
and and to try to grok them and understand them is actually antithetical to the experience. So what I'm talking about with energetic intimacy is is actually really simple and 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 you know when we're talking about intimacy types and emotional and physical ways that you feel connected, you will see energetic intimacy with someone who wants to take a hike in the woods and not really necessarily talk, have a shared experience like that. Like in developmental psychology, we we often will look at that as parallel play, right? And or or like even cooking dinner together, you know, where you're focused on some activity that is sort of bonding and and just by the fact that you're sharing this experience together. You're not it's not a deep dive into, you know, emotional landscape. It's not that you are in the physical realm connecting physically. It's that you are sort of breathing each other's air, right? So one of the things that I and this goes back to to my my sort of tantra practice. In the practice of tantra, there, we, we would get together with a group of people. And I talk about this a little bit in more detail in the book, but we would, we would practice basically together for a long periods of time, several times a week where we would pair up with somebody and sit for 20 minutes, eye gazing and matching breath. And it was incredibly intimate, right? And so I had to say to myself, I'm not, this is not physical intimacy. This is not emotional intimacy. I'm not talking, I mean, yes, emotions get stirred. And yes, we are, you know, often we we have like a physical contact, but that's not really what this is. Our clothes are on, we're, this is, there's something going on here. And what I, it took me a long time actually, and, and a relationship with <laughs> this individual, this man who it was just an absolute whirlwind of a relationship, short, short-lived, for me to be able to pull out this piece. And for a while I called it presence. And I think that's definitely part of it, to have to be present to each other moment to moment. But there's more of it. There's humility, there's curiosity. And it's just a way of connecting with someone beyond the utility of touch and language. And we've had those moments, you know, eye contact is a lot. Like even when you sort of, you know, I was getting a coffee the other day and I, and, and the, the, the guy at the coffee house behind the cash register was like having a hard day. I could tell he was really cranky. And I said to him, how you doing? And having a hard day, having a hard morning. And he looked at me and, and like really looked at me and said, you have no idea. And I said, I'm so sorry. It'll get better. I promise it always does. And he like that moment. Now we used our words and we, but when he really looked at me, in that that moment of like i asked him and he looked at me and there was like a connection point there so that is what i call energetic intimacy and now when you bring it to a sexual relationship or a sexual encounter to be able to connect with someone and and particularly like you know your 
spouse who has left a, a sink full of dirty dishes or their laundry on the floor or forgot to pay the utility bill or is talking endlessly about their, you know, their day at work or whatever, like all the things that kind of, you know, separate us or make us, you know, withdraw. When we put all of that aside and just look at each other with curiosity and wonder and and appreciation for like this person on a path without all of the story and all of the meaning and all of the personality and all of the dynamics and all of that stuff. It's It's really a sort of indelible thread of connection. And, and that's what I'm getting to with energetic intimacy. Yeah. I love that. I, I love that advice to kind of drop the story and just be present and look with wonder at this person. And it could be your partner, as you're saying, it could be the barista, but that you can connect with people in the moment energetically in, in this really profound way. I was actually curious if you would leave us with a favorite exercise that you use with your clients. And what I will say is, your book is just chock full of amazing, amazing exercises. So maybe give people a teaser of, of exercises that they can try out themselves either alone or with their partner to build radical intimacy. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to, this is a, this is just about my very favorite thing to do myself and, and to introduce to clients and friends and family members and anybody who's willing to listen. <laughs> Take a piece of fruit like a peach. Peaches are my favorite because they're just so, there's so much to enjoy about a peach, but it can be an apple or a pear or anything really, a grape even. And and set aside 10, 15 minutes to do this where you take a look. I'll, I'll speak to a peach because that's my, my home uh, fruit. And take a look at it. Hold it in your hand. Feel the weight. Notice the the fuzzy texture on the skin, the colors. Maybe it's a, a, a particularly yellow peach, or maybe it's more blush and you can see red in the skin. And smell it. Smell the peach. Think about, take a moment and think about the where that peach grew on the tree. And, and imagine that tree when it was just a seed, right? And it's just breaking through the the soil. And then, and then it gets thicker and the trunk gets, and finally it's like flowering. And then there are these flowers that end up becoming the fruit, right? And, and the, the person who picked the farmer who, who, you know, tills the land and, and cares for the trees and then picks the fruit and then sends it off you know in a in a bushel in a in a barrel or some vessel and sends it off to the grocery store and then the grocer who stocks the the produce section and those little misty things that keep all the produce moist and then you know you go and get your peach and you bring it home and you're there it is and smell it see it all five senses. And then finally, take a bite of this peach and really just slow down. Don't think about anything else. 
all of your awareness is on this peach, the way your front teeth feel when they break the skin, the way the sensation of the juice running over your, your tongue, your gums, in your mouth, smell that is unleashed when you break that skin, right? All of it, the temperature of it. Has it been in the refrigerator? Was it on the counter? All of it. Feel as you swallow just sort of like micro awareness of the sensation of your body swallowing. And then how does it feel in your belly? Like, wow, just get lost in the experience of the peach, right? Total wonder, total curiosity, totally fresh and new, what, what Buddhists call beginner's mind as if this were the first time that you've ever encountered such a magical thing as a peach, right? Take the time to do that. You can do it with a cup of coffee. You can do it with anything. You can do it with a glass of water. And then imagine bringing that kind of awareness and curiosity and presence to your next sexual encounter. I'm going to have to sort of pause and sit with that. (laughs) All right. I want to finish with one question that actually somebody wrote on Twitter that I thought was kind of brilliant and also a little bit funny, but this is a question about your personal life. Mm. What's it like for your husband to live with a sex guru, somebody whose (laughs) professional life is all about helping people optimize their sex lives and get the most out of it. How does he feel about that? He thinks he's the luckiest man in the whole world. (laughs) And listen, he's got his own skills. I, I chose him and I ended up with him for a reason. So, um, yeah. Sweet. Well, Zoe, where can people go to find out more about your work, connect with you, find your writing? Um, where should people go to, to get more Zoe? The the hub is zoecores.com and and I love Instagram. That's my thing. But you can find like all the serious stuff about the book and the podcast and all of those things at zoecores.com. That's right. And, and you're the uh, resident sex and intimacy coach on Coral as well. So yes. Um, Coral, um, you can go to getcoral.app or go to the app store and search for Coral Sexual Intimacy um, or Sexual Wellness. Coral is a great app. A lot of the exercises that are in the book are also on Coral. I'm the resident sex and intimacy coach, and I do a lot of things on the team now and for the app, but originally was brought on by Ashana Walsh, the founder who hired me to create experiential exercises to get people more in tune and connected with themselves and then each other. That's awesome. That's such a great resource. Well, thank you, Zoe, so much for taking the time. And I hope people check out Coral and your book. There, There's so much to learn. And I really do think there's so many ways that we can develop our sex and intimacy lives in in ways that are more satisfying for us and and that we aren't equipped and your resources really provide a lot of amazing guidance so thank you thank you so much what a pleasure to be here with you today thank you for listening to psychologists off the clock 
If you enjoy our podcast, you can help us out by leaving a review or contributing on Patreon. You can get more psychology tips by subscribing to our newsletter, and you can find us wherever you get your podcasts. Connect with us on social media and purchase swag from our merch store by going to our website at offtheclockpsych.com slash merch. We'd like to thank our strategic consultant, Michael Harold, our dissemination coordinator, Katie Rothfelder, and our editorial coordinator, Melissa Miller. This podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes only and is not meant to be a substitute for mental health treatment. If you're having a mental health emergency, dial 911. If you're looking for mental health treatment, please visit the resources page of our website, offtheclockpsych.com.